This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Welcome to the October 30th, 2023 For Your Benefit radio show. I'm Bob Lines, and we have special guest, Mark Levine, Esquire, also known as an attorney. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How many years have we been doing this? You asked me that question before, and I don't have a good answer. I've been given seminars for well over 20 now, but uh, I don't know. Whenever we started the ra- whenever you started the radio program, I think I started coming on. Yeah, I think it's 25 years or so. Anyway, so we're going to talk about what today? Healthcare directives? What's that? So yeah, we're going to talk about healthcare, the, the healthcare component of, of estate planning. So a lot of what people think about when they think about what does an estate planning attorney do is they think about wills and trusts and what happens when people die. And that's really important. And it's a big part of what we do. But honestly, you know, the, uh, a big part of what actually affects the quality of your life is dealing with lifetime documents, dealing with who makes decisions, how do you set that up? Uh, what are those decisions? And a big part of that are healthcare. A lot of the time, a lot of the effort, a lot of the energy, especially as, as uh, for kids, as their parents grow older, is dealing with healthcare decisions, healthcare um, issues. Uh, and so making sure that people think through what they want to happen and think through how do I effectuate that? How do I communicate that to my family? How do I communicate that to the decision makers? How do I figure out who really needs to be making those decisions? Uh, and so that sort of developed into a healthcare directive. Uh, so historically, there were living wills that said, this is what I want to happen. But there weren't in those living wills an appointment of a person to do it. And so you had these vague statements of what someone wanted to happen, but you didn't have the, the uh, appointment of a person to do it. And over the years, through different court cases, including, you know, many people are familiar with the Terry Schiavo case, but there are a number of other cases that developed this law um, basically saying that you have the right to make advanced healthcare decisions and you have the right to appoint someone to carry those decisions out for you. And those are the things that we sort of combine in the healthcare directive. Uh, So very often when we're talking to clients, we'll go through the healthcare directive issues and they'll go, well, what about my living will? And, you know, or what about, is this the same as a durable power of attorney for healthcare? Um, And so, the first thing that's important to remember about healthcare directives, because they're called many different things in many different places, is we don't care what they're called. An appropriate healthcare directive um, only needs to do two things. It needs to name a healthcare agent, and it needs to name or, or make advanced healthcare decisions. Now, a, a good healthcare directive is going to do more. It's going to talk about organ donation. It's going to talk about disposition of your body. It may deal with mental health, but it, it, it deals with um, all of those different things. Uh, and so, you know, we sort of start with clients talking about what is your healthcare directive? Where do you get it? What, what is it? Uh, different states have different forms. Different states have different language for the same things. And so, for example, in Maryland, it's called advanced directive, which is kind of general and without a lot of specific meaning. Uh, so Virginia calls theirs an advanced medical directive. So, you know, it's about medicine. But DC calls it a durable power of attorney for healthcare. New York calls it a healthcare proxy. Florida calls it a designation of healthcare surrogacy. Um, we don't care what it's called. We just care what it does, um, and and making sure that the document, whatever it is, appoints someone and makes advanced decisions. So you know, when someone says, "What's a healthcare directive?" You know, it's a very long answer to your very short question. If one was to move from uh, state A to state B, does the directive have to be redone? So healthcare directives, like most estate planning, are valid anywhere in the country if they're valid where you did them, right? So a California healthcare directive is valid in Idaho, and an Idaho healthcare directive is valid in Virginia. The issue will usually be one of efficiency. In other words, the Virginia hospitals used to seeing the Virginia healthcare directive. 
if it's in Northern Virginia, it's used to seeing the Maryland healthcare directive and it's used to seeing the DC healthcare directive, but it's not used to seeing the Idaho one. So might it take longer for, for them to sort of figure out what has to happen? Um, should they, you know, will it, will it be as effective as quickly? Maybe not. It may take a little longer for them to follow through on the things that you would want. And there are some other things that have been done to try and help with that process to standardize things. Um, but it's valid anywhere as long as it's valid where you did it. All right. So is a healthcare directive different than a healthcare power of attorney? Yeah. So, so as we were saying, it doesn't really matter what it's called. Healthcare power of attorney, healthcare designation of surrogacy, healthcare proxy. Uh, I think Massachusetts might still call their document a living will, even though it appoints an agent. Um, so we don't care what it's called. Healthcare directives are exactly the same as a healthcare power of attorney. We need to make sure that the document, whatever it is, is appointing someone to, to make healthcare decisions or carry out your decisions and is giving guidance about what you want to happen if something were to happen to you. Um, so that's, that's why, you know, again, what we're looking at are the goals. And that's true with, you know, <clears throat> most estate planning is we're looking at what are our goals and how do we best effectuate that. Uh, and so, you know, we look first at the first part of that healthcare directive, which is who are we appointing? Um, what is it that, you know, what, what are we doing? Who are we giving this power to? Um, and for a lot of people, that seems like something that should be sort of the whole family. Well, I've got, you know, four kids and my four kids all love me and I love my four kids. So I'm going to name all four of them as my healthcare agent. Uh, now, if someone's married, they typically are gonna name their spouse as the primary person. And their question is really, if not my spouse, if not my wife, if not my husband, then who's going to do this? And that's, again, often where people look at adult children uh, to say that that's you know who they want to do the job. But really, like with your executor or your power of attorney or anyone you're picking to do things, we should be picking people based on their skill set, picking people based on what it is they know how to do or what it is they're good at doing, right? Not everyone is good at doing everything. Uh, some people are really good at getting the bills paid. Some people would never get the bills paid. But other people are, you know, better at, um, you know, going to dealing with healthcare decisions, dealing with what it is that that you want to happen, dealing with hospitals and nurses, and and so you want to look at skill sets. You want to look to see who's the best person for this role at this time. Um, so you know, that's that's what we're sort of looking at first: is who do we pick, uh, and you know you really have to think about the people um, that you're picking, the people that you uh, want to do it. If you're picking two people, you need to think about how they get things done. How do they deal with things? Uh, if you're picking one person, you have to think about how are they gonna interact with everyone else? Uh, at the end of the day, when you're picking your person, uh, I think it's really important to focus on who's your best healthcare advocate, not just who is the person who's going to pull the plug, in some ways, that's that's an easier thing. That's the end of everything. Not that it's easy and not that it's not important, um, but you need to be looking at who's going to be your healthcare advocate. Who is the person who's dealing with your healthcare provider every day? Who is the person who is dealing with insurance? Who's the person who's dealing with Medicare? Who's the person who's dealing with, if you're in a, in a hospital at some point or a rehab facility at some point, Who's the person who's dealing with the contact person? Who's being annoying, being the the you know the 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 squeaky wheel uh, to make sure that you get what you need, whether that's the right physical therapy or the right occupational therapy, or you know making sure that your medicine's coming at the right time and the right amounts. That is a person not generally who is passive. That is a person who is capable, when necessary, of being a pain of dealing with those different issues um, for, you know, for, for you. So you really want to be thinking about skill set. You want to be thinking about who is this person who can do this for me if I can't do it for myself. Um, like with a lot of things, naming someone as your agent doesn't remove your power. 
Um, most healthcare directives don't become effective until you are incapacitated, but you can have them where they're effective immediately. Doesn't really matter because anytime something has to be done, if the doctor thinks they can get guidance from you, they're not going to ask your agent. Um, you know, it is a uh, look at it as a sort of parallel but subordinate set of powers. You're saying that someone else can make healthcare decisions, but they can't override me if I'm competent, and I override them if I'm competent. Uh, but if I'm not, if it's because of medication that I'm on, if it's because you know there's some other physical or, or other issue that's preventing me from communicating, then this person that I've named is going to be able to, to make those decisions. Uh, and so giving that authority, saying, here's who gets to do this, is, is different than what they get to do, uh, you know, what, what it is you want them to do in different situations. Uh, so the first part is really picking the person that you trust, not just to sort of get things done and not just to, uh, you know, make the hard decisions, but also to carry out your wishes, someone who is sort of on the same page with you about what it is you want to happen in different situations, someone who understands what those decisions are, um, because that's going to guide what they're doing. That's going to guide uh, the decisions they make about medication. It's going to decide the decisions they make about where you are, um, because that, you know, that, that's a big part of what's important to you. So <clears throat> can this role be assigned to more than one person? Does that ever sure. happen? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times that's what people want. They'll come in and they say, I want all three of my kids or, or you know, four of my kids or five of my kids to do it together. More commonly, it's one person or I mean two people that they want. Um, and it's just really important to think about those two people. It is not enough that they both want what's best for you. It is not enough that they're both good people. You really need people. You need to think about how do these two particular people work together. All right. Is is there is there somebody called an advocate? Well, so your healthcare because agent. There's there's not a separate person called an advocate. The advocate. When we talk about a healthcare advocate, what we're really talking about is making sure the person you pick as your agent is capable of advocating for you that they are not just the person who you think, well, my son loves me, so I'm going to name him because if he has to pull the plug, he loves me. If he isn't capable of going into the hospital, if he isn't capable of talking to doctors, um, then he may not be capable of being your healthcare agent because they have to advocate for you. Um, it's not just that end-of-life decision. It's all the, the, the myriad of little decisions before that. Um, so your advocate is really just another it's a way to describe who your healthcare agent should be uh, in that sense. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of different parameters to the healthcare directive, not just, you know, we've talked about sort of who we pick, uh, and that's really important, um, and how they get along with people, how they communicate. So we're going to have, you know, when we do a healthcare directive, we almost always going to add what we call HIPAA authority. We're going to add a provision about consulting. So, you know, the document's going to say, look, my, my daughter's making the decisions, but all of my kids can talk to my doctors. And my daughter, this daughter's making decisions, but I want her to consult with all of the children uh, ultimately in deciding what they're going to do. Uh, it doesn't require her to. It doesn't prevent her from doing something against what they want. Um, but it just says, I would like this to be an open and transparent process. And, you know, we... We want your daughter or your son or whoever it is to be the, the person making decisions, but we don't necessarily want them to be the gatekeeper of your health care when it comes to the other children, especially. And that works most of the time or all the time? It works most of the time. I mean, you know, the vast majority of times things work out the way that you want them to be. Um, so it, it, it's, it, we have to deal with what happens when it doesn't, but usually it does. All righty. Andrew tells us uh, we need to take a break here and uh, listen to what uh, WEPA can do for the listeners. Times have changed, but WEPA's mission remains the same, to promote the health, welfare, and financial well-being of civilian federal employees. 
WEPA offers group term life insurance to civilian federal employees with up to $1.5 million in coverage, regardless of salary. As a WEPA member, you can access exclusive rates and benefits not available to the general public. How does this compare to Fegley? Unlike Fegley, WEPA's coverage amounts are not capped by your salary. WEPA will cover your family as well. For your children, WEPA offers double the benefits that Fegley offers. And for your spouse, WEPA offers 20 times more coverage than Fegley. 20 times more coverage! WEPA's coverage is also portable if you decide to leave the federal government or retire. You can even supplement or replace your existing policy. See how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. All righty. Welcome back for your benefit. We're here today talking with Mark Levine, Esquire, attorney at law, and the focus is 100% on health care directives. And we were directed very well for the first 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so. <laughs> Where do we go to step two? Well, I think we spent a lot of time talking about what they are and who we picked. I think, you know, the other thing that people focus on, if not the major thing people focus on, is what do I want to happen? Uh, what do I want to happen if? So remember, the healthcare directive needs to do two things. Name a healthcare agent and make advanced healthcare decisions. What do I want to happen? And I think the, the thing that most people focus on is the persistent vegetative state. Um, if I'm in a persistent vegetative state with no reasonable expectation of return to a cognitive life, what do I want to happen? So there are other situations and other power healthcare directives, they all deal with these things in slightly different language and slightly different ways. Um, there are provisions that deal with terminal conditions, which are a little different. There are some um, there are some provisions, you know, dealing in some of them with sort of less clear situations. Um, but I think that again, the one that most people focus on is that persistent vegetative state. Uh, and you know, most people in general, don't want to continue in a persistent vegetative state if the person's decided there's no reasonable expectation of a return to a cognitive life. Now, what people don't want often is for a doctor to decide that that's the case. They want their agent to be the person who gets the information, gathers the information, reviews it against what your priorities are, what's important to you. So, you know, there's never going to be a situation where the doctor says, there's a procedure we could do that works 98% of the time to bring the person back and your agent's gonna say, no, don't do it. They don't want anything. Um, you know, those are our common situations, not necessarily common, but there are situations where, you know, we know things, something's gonna work to bring you back. Um, it's, it's generally comes into play in the harder situations. You know, we can keep you going. Uh, maybe we'll come up with something. Maybe something will happen. Maybe a miracle will happen, uh, but that's what we're waiting on. We're not in a situation where we have a thing to do next to try and bring you back. Uh, and so what people want to happen in that situation depends on the people, right? So there are some people who will say, remove hydration, nutrition, life-sustaining procedures, except for comfort, care, and pain relief. You know, keep me pain-free, keep me comfortable no matter what, use whatever you have to use to do that. But other than that, allow a natural death to occur. Um, there are some clients who want to say, look, I, I always want to get nutrition and, and hydration, even if it's not just for comfort care, even if it's to keep me going. Um, and there are some clients who will specify how long they want that to happen. Uh, commonly, people will say, well, I want to make sure, you know, everyone gets a chance to get here. I had a client once who said, I don't want my daughter pulling the plug on me with my son on the elevator coming up to my room. I want to give everyone a chance to get here. Um, I have lots of clients who will say, look, keep me going for a month, keep me going for six weeks, keep me going for two weeks. Um, you know, rarely do you have someone who says, if there's no reasonable chance I'm coming back, I want you to keep me going no matter what. Usually there's some time frame uh, for, for what people want. I have a client with an autistic child who said, wait till my son's psychiatrist says that his support system is in place uh, because that's what's important to her. You get to design what that end of life looks like. Uh, you get a form from the, from the state that form is a, is a suggestion. It's a guideline. It's not the law. Uh, the law is you can do a verbal directive. You can say to someone, this is what I want, and that counts. Obviously, people can argue over what you said and what you meant and what condition you're in, and so it's not a good idea, 
uh, but you can do that. You can you can do it verbally, and if we can do it verbally, or if you could write your own, which you can, uh, we can certainly change the form that we get. And I think that's something that people uh, need to aren't necessarily clear on is you know the form that you get from the Commonwealth of Virginia or the state of New York or you know uh, Kentucky or, or Texas. That's a suggestion. It's a guideline. It's not the absolute rule about what you have to fill out. You get to make changes. You get to make uh, additions to it or subtractions from it to fit what your end of life looks like. Um, and that's really the big second part of this is figuring out what do you want your end of life to look like in those situations. So what what's the, the difference between a healthcare directive and a do not resuscitate? I think I know yeah. the difference, but I, I'd well, rather hear it from you. <laughs> So I think a lot of people conflate the two. I mean, a lot of people will say to me, "Oh, yeah, I want to do a healthcare directive. I want a, um, I want a, a do not resuscitate. I want DNR." So most people, first of all, healthcare directives are not do not resuscitate orders. EMTs, first responders, won't follow your healthcare directive. They don't care about you. It's strong to say they don't care about it, but they are not going to follow it. Your healthcare directive is subjective. It's sort of well, if you don't think I'm coming back, then I want you to do this or this or this. Um, do not resuscitate orders are binary. They're on or they're off. They exist or they don't. Uh, if a DNR is in place, it says to the EMT, don't perform CPR, uh, don't try and save this person's life, basically just keep them comfortable and allow, otherwise allow a natural death to occur. If they don't see the DNR, they have to save your life. They don't have a choice. They don't have discretion. They can't decide, you know, this will be bad for the person long term doesn't matter. Um, if they don't see the DNR, they have to save your life uh, and get you to the hospital. Um, EMTs, first responders don't want to do that if you have a DNR in place. They, they'd like to know that. They would prefer to see it. So if you've ever been in a hospice situation with someone or, or a, you know, assisted living, you'll often see the DNR on the refrigerator. You'll see it taped to a wall or taped to the door. Uh, so that the EMTs will find it. So they'll know that this is what the person wants. But truthfully, the vast majority of us don't want a DNR. I don't want a DNR. Um, if I'm in a car accident tomorrow, I would like them to take a shot at bringing me back. See what happens. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, I end up in the hospital. Hospitals do have to follow your healthcare directive. They do have to carry through on decisions. Uh, now, as you're being wheeled into the ER, everyone's not going to stop everything to go look at your healthcare directive. These things usually come into play when you are, you know, sort of in the hospital because something's happened or you uh, sort of admit yourself or it's, it's some sort of surgery that you've given them the document ahead of time. And in the document, we usually add something that says my agent can ask my doctor to issue the DNR. Uh, because at that point, they've come to the decision based on all the subjective information and what's in my healthcare directive and what they know about me that I wouldn't want this to continue. DNRs have to be signed by doctors. Uh, you cannot issue your own do not resuscitate order. Um, they are something signed by a doctor. So uh, if the EMT doesn't see it, they don't see a copy of it. Um, in most states that I'm aware of, they won't do anything. Uh, an EMT told me a story once of coming to a party. Someone had called. Grandma was in distress, and everyone's screaming at him that Grandma has a DNR. And as he said in the class, you know, 30 people screaming at me that Grandma has a DNR is not a DNR. Uh, I've got to save her life and get her to the hospital, whether you know, even if nobody wants me to do that at all. They they are not given discretion. So DNR is really important, um, and but it's a separate document. It ties into the. Um, Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, the POLST-MOLST form, uh, which we'll talk about. Um, but it's they're very different things. Uh, healthcare directors are subjective. DNRs are not. If, if, if you have a DNR, clearly it has to be at least one person. But what happens if the individual wants more than one person? More than one person to decide about the DNR? Yeah. So DNRs don't really work that way. Like I said, DNRs are binary. They're on or they're off. Either you have a DNR, which means they, the, the healthcare provider won't perform CPR. They won't try and bring you back. Or you don't have one, in which case they will, um, the EMTs and the first responders especially. Uh, 
that's different than withdrawing care, right? So, you know, the healthcare directives tend to focus on whether or not we continue medical interventions, hydration and nutrition, and whether we continue those or we remove those. DNRs are just CPR. They are saving the person's life in the moment. Um, so in a healthcare directive, you can have more than one person, as we've talked about. You could have two people. You just have to really think hard about how those two people get along, how they get work done. What does their relationship look like now? What does it look like in six months? What does it look like in a year of doing this um, to, to make those decisions? Because if, they, if they're at loggerheads, if they make different decisions, that nothing might happen for a while. Uh, and, and that's usually not what the person wants. The nothing is the last thing they usually want. So for the healthcare directive, you can have more than one person. The DNR doesn't really work that way because you're not appointing anyone to do anything. It's you're, you're sort of creating a situation. Mark, this is very good information. But my pen's out of ink and my mind's uh, closed. How does somebody get in touch with you? with me um so my contact information it's mark m-a-r-c at handler levine.com h-a-n-d-l-e-r-l-e-v-i-n-e.com uh, we have a website shockingly www.handlerlevine.com h-a-n-d-l-e-r-l-e-v-i-n-e.com uh, and my phone number is 301-961-6464 uh, we still have one of those so uh, you know, we're happy to, to be contacted any of those ways if people need need assistance. I think it's important for the listeners to know that um, you, you do a lot of work with federal employees, retirees, as well as non-federal, correct? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been uh, speaking to federal government employees for well over 20 years now. I don't like to think about the exact number, but I know it's it's over 20 years. Uh, and uh, work with a lot of federal government employees on, on all of their issues, uh, including health care issues. Yep. And, and I've been privileged to sit through a few. Not recently. That, I ago. mean, it, if you stayed awake, that's great. That's exciting <laughs> for me. Um, that, that was not a problem. You know, when we talk about healthcare directives in the class, we don't normally even, you know, get as much time as we'd like to talk about some of the other some of the other nuances of of it because you know we talked about the healthcare directive and we talked about the dnr uh, and i mentioned something called a most form or a post form uh physician's order for life-sustaining treatment um and the 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 form was created because i think it was hard for uh hospitals to find certain important information uh, it was buried in a file, it was buried in a healthcare directive. <clears throat> so they created these forms and your doctor goes over them with you. So they didn't create the forms thinking about the healthcare directive and the healthcare directive and the post form don't necessarily um, work well together. Uh, but as you get older, it's something you're going to be you know, faced with is that your doctor one day is going to sit down and say, we want to talk about the post form. Um, and among the things that are in there is a DNR. Uh, and so, you know, that is where very often that, that DNR conversation first comes up with the doctor is when the person's talking about the physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. Uh, and so as clients get older, that's definitely a form that comes into play more and is, is overlapping with the healthcare directive. Uh, so it's sort of that, that third form that forms the sort of healthcare documents along with a DNR if you want it uh, and the healthcare directive. I have a habit of writing everything down. So this form is M-O-L-S-T. Is that right? Well, that's the Maryland order for life-sustaining treatments. Sometimes they're called medical orders for life-sustaining treatments. And sometimes, just to be confusing, they're called physician's order for life-sustaining treatments. But the national form, the form you're going to see from state to state to state, is the PULSE, the physician's order for life-sustaining treatments. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, the state that you're in, you just Google New York Post or, or Nebraska Post or Florida Post, and, and you'll get the form for the state that you're in. So with, with these different forms and, and considerations and family consideration, do you ever sit down with the whole family and straighten out what otherwise is a, a 
not in such good shape. You know, this person wants that and the other person wants that. They're not bad people. It's just that they would rather see this than that. Yeah, I mean, I think with the healthcare situation, sometimes fa families come in. I think it's more important than talking to me is that mom and dad talk to the kids uh, about what they want, about what's important to them. And there are resources to do that. There are resources online. Um, there's a website called agingwithdignity.org, which has a document called Five Wishes, which is a wonderful uh, booklet sort of full of questions and conversations that you can have with your family about what you want your end of life to look like, what's important to you. Um, very often for clients, we provide a dementia directive, which sort of says, hey, if I have severe dementia, and they kind of define it, moderate dementia, severe dementia, this is what I want to happen. It's not a binding document, it's a guideline. It's sort of intended to give information to everyone about what it is you want to happen in these different situations. Um, so it's rare that the whole family comes into my office to talk about the healthcare stuff, um, but I certainly encourage clients to talk about that with their family. Um, it's the one document that I strongly urge clients to give to their kids, even if they're not inclined to give them everything else. Um, and they probably should give them everything else too. Um, but even if they're not inclined to do that, I strongly urge them to give copies of the healthcare directive to their kids because they need that. They need to know it. They need to see it. They need to ask you questions about what's important to you, about what you mean by something ahead of time. Because when they have to use it, probably they can't ask you about it. You won't be in a situation where you can answer their questions. All righty. One more time. Phone number or email. You pick it. Oh, sure. 301-961-6464, uh, extension 3313. Uh, and uh, Mark, M-A-R-C, at handlerlevine.com, H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. Very good. Andrew says, you got another two minutes before we take another break. <laughs> okay. And then after the break, we, we'll, we'll still be here. Well, so when we come back from the break, I'll say there are a couple things, other things more specific in healthcare directives to talk about. Um, there are different issues dealing with mental health issues that I think are important to, to touch on. Um, organ donation, religious issues for people, and really important to talk about healthcare directives for adult children uh, and how you sort of prepare your adult child going off into the world um, for that. Uh, so that, that's something that I wanna make sure that we talk about. Uh, and then talking about how your healthcare directive interacts with your power of attorney, your financial power of attorney, because there's a lot of interaction between those two things that we want to make sure is working the way that we want it to work. Um, there are a bunch of resources for healthcare directives online. Uh, there's something called, um, uh, now I'm trying to think of the name, uh, compassionandchoices.org, uh, which used to be the Hemlock Society. They have great information. Uh, and, and really good end-of-life decision-making information. Caringinfo.org has forms for all 51 jurisdictions. So if you're trying to help grandma somewhere else, that's a good resource. And I already talked about Aging with Dignity, which is a really good website. They've got a lot of tools to help you make decisions and also to help you talk to your family about the things that you want to happen in those situations as well. Uh, so there's a lot of resources for these end-of-life decision-making information. Very good. I'm told that it's time for another break and let the listeners know what NITP can do for them. Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's NITPinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars. Are you at the mid-career stage of your federal career, or do you plan to retire in the next five years and wonder if you are prepared for retirement? No matter what career stage you are, it's never too early to dot the I's and cross the T's. NITP now offers online open enrollment training to help you understand your federal benefits package and financial planning options with tips and tools to plan and fine-tune your retirement planning goals. Visit NITPINC.com to download the current brochure and calendar. 
All righty, welcome back to the final, what we got, uh, 19 minutes. <laughs> Andrew says 19 minutes. So, that we got our marching orders. Okay. Well, so as I talked about, there are a number of, of issues within the healthcare directive situations and areas. Um, I'm going to talk first about the thing I mentioned last, which is uh, making sure that if you're the person who's going to be responsible for your adult child, if something happens to them, you have a healthcare directive in place for them. You do not have the right to your adult child's healthcare information. You don't have the right to make decisions for them. Uh, it's their private information. They are, you know, it's their their money. I mean, their money. It's their health care, uh, and you don't have a right to it, even if you pay for their health insurance, even if you pay for the care that they're given. If they're in college and they're at a college, you know, facility, uh, you're paying for all of that. None of that matters. Uh, the hospital does not have to provide you with information, and in fact, the hospital probably isn't allowed to provide you with information. Now, the truth is they do. They provide information all the time to people. Um, they they want to get information. They want to know more background so they can help the patient. Um, they probably don't want all that responsibility themselves. So they, they are going to often cooperate, but they absolutely don't have to. And I will tell you that every single year in usually September or October, I get a phone call from a client or a friend whose child is in the hospital. Um, often it's, you know, a drinking incident where they're unconscious. Often it's a psychiatric incident where they may or may not be willing to talk to mom and dad. Um, and, and mom and dad are sitting outside in a, in a room, you know, at, at a hospital being told that we can't tell you anything and you can't know anything. Uh, and the most important, one of the most important things to do was your kid heads off to college is to make sure they have a healthcare directive. When my daughter turned 18. She woke up to a cupcake and a manila envelope with a healthcare directive in it. Uh, and as she said, she enjoyed the, the cupcake, but she thought the manila envelope was way too much adulting way too early in her adulthood. Uh, but that's what she had to do. Um, so you really need to think about that. And that kind of rolls into the, the mental health issues, the, the part of it. Uh, you know, there are the, the physical issues and the mental health issues overlap in a lot of different situations. They overlap in a lot of different ways. And some healthcare directives deal with that straight on, and some of them don't deal with it at all, and some of them deal with it in a separate document. Um, so, for example, Maryland has a separate advanced directive for mental health treatment. Virginia uses their, either their regular form, but they have provisions in there dealing with mental health treatment. And those are really there for people who know that they have an issue. Uh, very often there are situations when, when people are on their medication, when they're in a good place, they understand that there are times in their life when they're not, when they lose control, when they go off their medication. Um, and so they're willing, when they're in a good place, to do the healthcare directive for, for mental health issues or to fill out those provisions of the Virginia form or other forms to make sure that mom and dad have the tools they need to help them. And it may not be mom and dad. As people get older, they have these issues as well. And there may be a spouse or there may be a sibling who's doing it. Uh, a lot of them deal with the ability to have someone committed. Um, and, you know, there are voluntary and involuntary. And voluntary is not really an issue, right? If you're willing to go, that doesn't require a lot of extra work by the healthcare agent. It's if you're not willing to go. Uh, where it does. And so sometimes people are willing with the cooperation of their doctor who usually has to sign off on it to say, look, I trust these people to make this decision about having me, you know, committed to or in mental treat mental health care treatment, um, even if I protest. And for families where that's an issue, it's a really vitally important tool. Uh, to deal with and to deal with head on and to deal with as early as possible um, when your, your daughter or your son is willing to do it, when they're willing to give you that, that ability. It's always revocable. They can always withdraw that ability if they're competent, um, but it's something that it doesn't usually happen. It's not usually an issue, but when it is an issue, it's, it's hugely impactful. It's impactful on the child. It's impactful on the family. Um, and, and having the tools to deal with that is, is really, really important. And 
and people need to look at that as part of all of the the health care the mental health care that they're doing for their family and their child if i was to look geographically and look at say florida because that's a mecca i guess for decent climate and whatnot and people retire so do you find sometimes this state might be better to tie in than that state I mean, you can't run your life if, if the state that you should be going to is the one that you don't want to be going to. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, and I think we've, you and I have, have used this term before in this conversation about, you know, financial stuff. You don't let the, the, the tax tail wag the life dog and you don't let the, the sort of other, other choices tag, you know, control what you want to happen, where you want to live. Um, but, you know, certainly different states have different medical providers. They have different infrastructures. Uh, and so, you know, living 50 miles away from a hospital is is going to create a lot more complications for you than living somewhere where there are hospitals within five miles. Uh, and so I don't know, you know, I, I, I do know Florida has lots and lots of them. I was just there this weekend visiting my mom. Uh, and so certainly you can't drive anywhere there without seeing lots of different facilities. Um, but I think there are lots of good places. You know, we're certainly in a good place here in the D.C. area. Uh, New York and New Jersey have lots of great places. California, Chicago. I think as you get into the country, you know, the, the parts of the state that are more spread out, where the populations are more spread out, by definition, the healthcare is going to be more spread out as well. Um, but I think there are lots of people who find their way perfectly fine there, uh, you know, and get the healthcare they need. Okay. I believe, Andrew, it's time to look at what do we got. How many more minutes, Andrew? <laughs> Andrew says seven. We so have, we have seven. Okay. Well, there are a couple of more things in the healthcare area. You know, one of the the big things, and it doesn't happen as much as it used to, but it still does happen, is that there are clients who are concerned about how their religious beliefs interact with the healthcare directive. Um, you know, whether it is. Uh, you know, Orthodox Jewish or Orthodox uh, Christian or Catholic um, or other, you know, uh, religions, there are lots of people who are concerned about what does that mean? What does my uh, religion, what is, their, what is their guideline for these decisions? I prefer clients sort of think about it this way. Start with what you would want to happen um, and say in the document, this is what I would like in terms of what my end of life would look like. Uh, and then what we'll often work with clients to do is say, but before you do that, um, you know, I want you to contact my priest or my pastor or my rabbi or my imam or whoever it is and, and make sure that what I want conforms to what the religious teachings allow. Um, and so for a lot of people, this, this stops them from moving forward, the concern about what their religious teachings will or won't allow. And, and you know, what we've tried to do is find a way to, to get clients to move forward. And so say, okay, this is what I want. And within that, once you've sort of figured out what my situation is and what the options are, then I want you to go back to my religious leader and say, okay, this is what Mark wants. Is this okay within, you know, what we want to happen here? And I've definitely seen over the last 20 plus years of, of practice that most of the, the religious um, objections uh, have been dealt with to some extent. You know, most of the time when I'm dealing with the, the sort of formal uh, position of a religion on, on these things, they mostly conform to what people want. In other words, you know, they don't want euthanasia. They don't want someone to be, you know, sort of, ended when they shouldn't be ended um, but all of them sort of say look comfort care is comfort care and you should keep the person comfortable uh, and you know it's okay to not take heroic means to save someone's life um, you have to tend to them and you have to you know do the the regular things but you don't necessarily have to you know go to to herculean efforts to do something that's not likely to work uh, and so i think for people who feel that objection who are concerned about you know, whether that's allowed, uh, you know, I would seek out now those that information, talk to your attorney, talk to your 
religious leader and, and get that information because I think it's a lot more um, it's a lot more flexible now than than you may think it is. Uh, and the same thing is true with organ donation. Uh, another objection that we get sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes organ donation is another thing that's dealt with in healthcare directives. It doesn't have to be. Um, it's a valid healthcare directive if it doesn't deal with that at all. But a lot of them do deal sort of head on with organ donation. Uh, and for people who want to be organ donors, I think it's kind of the same thing is you say you want to be an organ donor. And if you have a religious concern about it, you know, have something in there for someone to consult with your religious leader uh, or advisor or teacher or, or, or you know, priest um, to find out what's okay. I think, again, a lot of what I've seen over the last 20 years is people understanding, not necessarily understanding, the developing thought that the saving of the life is worthwhile. And so, you know, there's a lot of a conversation about it's okay to to have organ donation to save someone's life, but not necessarily for education or research or something like that. Uh, and and so people find a way to do the thing they would want to do. I'll also say that almost universally, we have a provision that says even for people who don't want organ donation, even for people who have a religious concern about it, they want an exception for their kids, for their family. You know, as a client said to me once, I'd give them my kidney now. Why wouldn't I give them my kidney later? Uh, and so, you know, very often they want to sort of carve out that very, very unlikely uh, situation where, you know, at their end of life, their organ could be used for their family. Uh, and so, you know, if organ donation is important to you, uh, you know, and, and the conversation should be important to you one way or the other, uh, you know, think about it, have the conversation, think about what you would want to happen in those issues, those situations. If, if you're dealing with different people, are some people better approached younger than later? Younger might be in their late 20s, early 30s, rather than their late 40s or late 50s. Uh, you know, I think that currently people seem more willing to deal with it uh, you know, younger, whereas a lot of people, I think, I would say earlier in my career, just didn't want to deal with it at all. Uh, but, you know, look, it's most important for older clients. Uh, older clients are more likely to have the healthcare issues that require these documents. They have adult children, um, and they want to make sure that how their adult children interact with them and with their healthcare and with each other is in a way that will be a positive thing for their family and not a negative thing for their family. Uh, it's really important, you know, as you get older, to deal affirmatively with these issues, to make sure uh, you're doing that, again, not just for you and your quality of life at the end of your life, but also to make sure that your family is all on board with what you want, that they're all pulling the oars in the same direction and not creating friction with each other. Um, literally, the last thing that we kind of deal with and that's kind of dealt with, period, is the disposition of your body. Uh, you know, a healthcare directive is often where it will say, I want to be buried, or I want to be cremated, or I want to be used as fertilizer for a tree, or I want to be compressed into a piece of jewelry, or I want to be shot into space, or the ever popular Viking funeral uh, that people ask for. And I have to explain why that's not something that is allowed anywhere. Um, there are people who want their ashes spread different places. Some of them are possible, some of them are impossible, some of them are illegal, uh, but still possible. Um, and so, you know, the, that's something that the healthcare directive does as well. Sometimes there's a difference between who you want making your healthcare decisions and who you want making the decision about where you're buried or what happens to your ashes or, or those sorts of things. And so you can certainly lay out in the document, um, you know, who gets to make those decisions, what you would like, um, I had a client who uh, said he wants something in his will uh, that says that he wants to be cremated and he wants his three sons to bring his ashes back to his village in Italy that he, you know, emigrated from 100 years ago. Um, and he told me privately, he said, I don't really care about my ashes being there, but during my life, I could never get my kids to come and visit where I was from. And so this is my last chance to get them all to go there and see this history. Uh, and so I figure my dying wish they can't ignore. 
they're going to have to find time for it. Uh, so, you know, that was the, that was a, an interesting use of your burial uh, to, to do that. Uh, the most important takeaway from all of this is just to do it, to do whatever part of it you can do. Um, if you can't face a part of it, do the rest of it. Um, a lot of this, there's a lot of great resources online to do it. Um, obviously, you know, there are lots of good attorneys who have a lot of experience dealing with family issues and, and different things that can help, but, but do it, deal with these stuff, the stuff, because it, it will not only impact the quality of your life, but it will impact the quality of your family's lives as well in dealing with your end of life. All righty. What have we got, Andrew? One minute. I can't, I, sorry, I can't see. It looked like you raised your one finger. So let's, let's do the one finger rule. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully Andrew has a healthcare directive. Hopefully Bob has a healthcare directive. Um, you know, hopefully I have, I do have a healthcare directive. That one I can answer. Uh, my, my two adult kids have them. I have a kid who's going to be turning 18 in a little, about a month. And she'll get one too, whether she wants one or not. Uh, because they, they really are something that it doesn't matter your situation. It doesn't matter who you are or what your situation is. We all need to have a healthcare directive in place. Uh, we need people who can make decisions and we hopefully want people to know what those decisions are. Now you mentioned 18, would it be unwise or not legal to do it before 18? You can't. In other words, you know, you have to be 18 to sort of contract to, to do those sorts of things. Unless you've been emancipated, then you probably can. Um, but but 18 is is really the age when you sort of lose your ability to, to get this stuff. OK, final 15 seconds. <laughs> go go deal with it. That's that's what I'll say. Usually I end my estate uh, planning seminars by saying go do estate planning. So I'll say go to estate planning, but especially go deal with your your healthcare directives and 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 help your family help you. Yeah, but I want to deal with you. How do I get in touch with you? <laughs> uh, 301-961-6464 or mark at handlerlevine.com. All righty. Thank you, Mark. Terrific thanks, as Bob. always. Andrew, thanks for steering the ship home. And listeners? We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.